Welcome to the Taming the Shrew podcast. My name is Josh Borkowski. I'm a paramedic and EMS educator with the University of Cincinnati Division of EMS. We're joined today by Dr. Jay Johannigman, who is the Chief of the Division of Trauma and Critical Care for the University of Cincinnati, and also a former uh, firefighter and paramedic before he began his uh, career as a physician. So, Dr. Johannigman, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, and uh, welcome and congratulations to all our partners out there in EMS on EMS Week. Uh, so we wanted to talk today about kind of what the military has brought to uh, trauma care or the military experience has brought to civilian trauma care. First off, I guess just start with your role. What, what is your background in the military and then what role does UC uh, play in training uh, physicians that take care of our soldiers overseas? Yeah, so uh, I had the good fortune of when joining the military through essentially a medical scholarship program called HPSP and uh, they sent me to medical school and in return I served five years of active duty Excellent. Right when I finished. But then uh, it's been such a rewarding experience. I've stayed in as a reservist since that time. I'm now in my uh, some 30th year of service, but also because of that, uh, have worked here on Cincinnati Sea Stars, which we'll talk about, but also have had the opportunity to deploy overseas to Iraq and Afghanistan on six occasions. Um, I think most of your EMS community will understand that uh, we here at Cincinnati University Hospital have been chosen as one of the five national hospitals to specifically partner with the United States military as a military trauma training center. Specifically here in Cincinnati, our job is to treat and to teach what we call the CCAT teams. Those are the teams that consist of a doctor, a nurse, and a respiratory therapist who move critically injured soldiers from as far forward as possible and move them to a more rearward situation. Also just want to remind our EMS providers, if you're ever around University Hospital and are interested in seeing the C-STARS training center and or the uh, simulation center, which uh, mimics the inside of an aircraft, uh, just let our EMS uh, communities, our teachers, or our EMS outreach people know we'll be happy to uh, host you and, uh, and your crew to come on down for a visit. I guess the first question would be, how does the military decide, you know, we get all this care on the civilian side from the military, so how does the military decide how we're going to take care of soldiers? And I know that comes from the uh, Committee on Tactical ca- tactical Combat Casualty Care. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that committee. Right, and just a, as you, sometimes it's a mouthful, so we often refer <laughs> to it as the TCCC. Sure. But this goes back, actually, it's a fascinating committee. It actually dates back to 2001, before even 9-11. And its roots are actually in Mogadishu. Uh, those of you who remember the movie Black Hawk Down, the incident there involved a young man fast roping who missed the rope, hit the ground after about a 20-foot fall. And the special operator medics there were trying to render casualty care as though they were on the civilian streets of the United States in a a safe condition. Uh, The special forces came back to military medicine and said, with all due respect, what you're teaching us may be good medicine, but it's bad tactics. And if we get Mm -hmm. killed with bad tactics, then we won't help anybody. Of course. So out of that arose, initially through the Navy, and now funded by all services, a committee called the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee. Started in 2001, exists to this day, and initially was used to write the pre-hospital care rules for all the special forces, the SEALs, the Rangers, the Green Berets, and the PJs. It has been so successful now that it's been extended to all the military pre-hospital care providers, including the, the basic infantry medics out in the field in the Army, and the Navy, as well as the Air Force, and soon will be part of the Combat Lifesaver Group. The committee meets four times a year. It consists of 75% enlisted personnel who have to be special forces and have to have deployment experience and 25% are officers or physicians. Um, I sit on it along with Dr. Mel Otten at the right, right. Center for Emergency Care. 
both Mel and I sit on it as civilian physician members, although both Mel and I have military service in our background. Those of you, the paramedics and EMS providers interested, all of the findings, all of the guidelines of the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care can be found uh, in a textbook uh, that is very similar to PHTLS, it's just the military's version. And so what the TCCC did back in 2001, and the construct still to this day is, they had divided care, all the care that occurs in the military for the pre-hospital care uh, provider is divided into three segments. Care under fire, while you're still engaging the enemy, tactical field care, once the firefight has stopped, and then TACAVAC or en route care, getting the patient ready for evacuation. Right. So it's very simple. Care under fire, the rules, there's only seven basic rules. Sure. The first rule, which interestingly enough, is return fire. Right. And if the casualty is capable of returning fire, tell the casualty to return fire. Mm -hmm. During care under fire, the only thing the casualty is instructed to do is to uh, try to stop hemorrhage and to make sure the, uh, the airway is open. That's all the more sophisticated it gets. Right. So all those rules have been rewritten and fascinating. They've led to some real innovations that we've brought here now to Cincinnati, and I thought maybe we would talk about some of the changes that we see. And some of the things the paramedics out in the community are now hearing about actually came from the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committee. Absolutely, and interestingly enough, I mean, the TCCC has been so successful that you're even starting to see either that course or similar courses uh, being taught on the civilian side to uh, medics that work in a tactical environment, say in the SWAT team, or they're trained to go into like active shooter incidents, those types of things. Uh, so those principles are definitely carrying over into uh, uh, to the civilian medicine here in the state. So, yeah, let me just step in for sure. a second because as the members of the TCCC, we've actually been kind of concerned because we know we're, we're delighted and want that message out there, but there's also been essentially some pirated versions of TCCC taught in an un, um, oversighted fashion. All mm -hmm. of anyone who's interested, all of the teaching materials, all of the slides, all the material of the TCCC is public domain, and it's available through the United States Army's Institute of Surgical Research it's uh, on the website there. So I would encourage those of you, if you want the course, just make sure that the instructors are teaching the real TCCC and or you can go research this yourself. Yeah, and I think the courses I was referring to all come from uh, the National Association of EMTs. Yes, which, and, uh, and they are one of our partnering agencies and we're working with them to spread the word. Absolutely. Sure, so wonderful. I think that's the best course yep. if you're yep. interested in a course like that or that applies to whatever you do. Uh, something to the NAEMT would be a perfect way to get that training. And just the godfather of NAEMT, a, a physician by the name of Dr. Norman McSwain. Right. A legendary yeah. surgeon who unfortunately passed away within the year. Sure. Norm was a founding member of the TCCC as well, and that's how come he was the editor of PHTLS, and that's how we got it all published in PHTLS. So right. again, uh, NAEMT, long-standing friend of the TCCC. Great. So let's talk about some things that uh, specifically that has come to civilian uh, trauma care uh, from the military. And I guess probably the biggest thing is the understanding of the importance of controlling external hemorrhage and improving control of external hemorrhage. And, and that starts with tourniquets and also uh, hemostatic agents. Tell us about that. Absolutely. So part of that, in a, in a slightly different fashion in the civilian world, still in the military, Vietnam, and actually during the first four years of OIF and OEF, the humbling realization is between 30 to 35 percent of all military casualties who die, die because they bleed to death of wounds in the arm or the legs. That is distal to the axilla and distal to the groin. And that's why bleeding, and part of that now is because our soldiers wear body armor. 
mm -hmm. and the the weaponry if it defeats body armor it's usually a lethal event sure so we're can we're very interested so let's talk about the two things you uh, recommended first of which is tourniquets it's interesting that I took my first EMT course um, a long time ago back uh, actually in the 70s and was taught then as most EMTs have been taught almost up to the last few years that tourniquets were evil. Right. If you actually look at the history of warfare, tourniquets go back through ancient Greece. They were certainly available in the Civil World War. They were recommended to uh, all medics in the First World War. They weren't used very much in the Second. They were abandoned in Vietnam. But the point of the matter is Tourniquets do work. They work very effectively. The military came to that realization and they've published multiple papers on it now that clearly show that you can place a tourniquet on without ill effect for up to four hours and that's the recommendation of the TCCC. And in fact now tourniquets are widely available. For those of you who are interested, the, the Army put these through a very rigorous testing process. There's two that have passed the rigors of the TCCC, the first of which is called the CAT, the Combat Application Tourniquet, the other of which is called the Soft T, the Special Operation Forces Tourniquet. They're available, they're out there on the website. Um, I think they're uh, commonly commercially available through like North American Rescue, etc. The CAT tourniquet uh, is somewhere around $30 per copy. And oh, by the way, as of three years ago, the Centers for Medicaid Services have said that for an ambulance equipped that will bill Medicaid or Medicare, uh, Medicare that the ambulance must have a approved tourniquet on board. So tourniquets are actually an approved item. For, for hemorrhages that can't be controlled with tourniquets or additional, uh, you know, some of those junctional wounds and things right. like that, uh, uh, hemostatic uh, agents uh, like combat gauze are probably the most common, or at least the one I'm most familiar with. How do those work and, and how do those, how have those improved hemorrhage control? Sure, so the military, just as you said, it's an adjunct or it works in combination or for those wounds that are too high like in the groin or in the axilla mm -hmm. that you can't put a tourniquet we use hemostatic agents the one uh, that uh, a lot of people are using right now is combat gauze combat gauze is essentially a curlex that has uh, zeolite or has um, chitosin incorporated into it makes it a pro a coagulant a very effective agent the army tests all these uh, or actually the combat gauze has kaolin in it. All these are tested by the Army in a very rigorous uh, laboratory fashion down at the Army's Institute of Surgical Research. Um, so uh, the use of combat gauze is an adjunct. It is always meant to be applied with pressure in the hand uh, and is not meant to be simply left in place without continual uh, visual supervision. The, what's most interesting is the TCCC looks at this literature and comes back to it about every three years. So combat gauze generation two. What's really interesting now is there's now a new uh, product called Extat, right, which is right. essentially a big syringe, a plunger syringe full of small chitosan pellets that will expand once you put it into a deep wound. Extat is now available, FDA cleared. Initially it was cleared only for use in the military. It's now cleared for civilian use primarily in the hospitals for junctional hemorrhage where the patient has a, a high probability of bleeding to death if something isn't done. But uh, those interested, if you just uh, go out and Google Extat, you'll see this. It, it turns out to be a very effective and potent anticoagulant or anti-bleeding uh, uh, agent and a hemostatic agent. 
And I, I guess the overriding point, and this is one area where I think a lot of EMS providers maybe need a little bit of clarification or it takes mm-hmm. a little bit of a training where the classic teaching is when we have external hemorrhage and we're trying to control direct pressure, you see people just stacking gauze externally on the wound, which really doesn't do any good. When, when you talk about direct pressure, you need to get whatever you're using, pack that wound and really get into the vessel that's bleeding and put pressure on that vessel. And that's the key. No matter what agent you're using, that's the key to, to stopping that bleeding, correct? Absolutely. And, and as a, you know, a paramedic like yourself and back in the days when I was in the back of the box, I think the most common mistake I see is pack and forget. That's absolutely right. to be abandoned. And, and uh, you know, I have a very good friend, Colonel John Holcomb, who gives a lecture like this. And then unfortunately, uh, on the podcast, it won't translate. But visually, Dr. Holcomb holds up his first finger and says that the first finger of a trained medic is the best hemostatic agent, sure. which is to say that yes, you can use gauze, but first and foremost, it's your hand, pressure, and watching to see whether you've controlled that hemorrhage. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, another agent that's uh, fairly new to the Cincinnati area, and maybe people might not be as familiar with as uh, tourniquets, but uh, has, has, I think been a big game changer for uh, hemorrhage control that you can't see, and that's uh, tranexamic acid, or TXA. Uh, so that's uh, fairly new. Uh, the ground EMS agencies in the Cincinnati area, that's now in the protocol uh, for use in uh, when you have clinical signs and symptoms of shock from trauma. Uh, so talk about how TXA works and how that helps uh, control internal bleeding that you can't stop with uh, direct pressure. Sure. Transimic acid or TXA. I actually met TXA when I was in Afghanistan mm-hmm. because we, the Air Force and the military, U.S. military, we're up in northern Afghanistan at a hospital called Bagram. Most of you remember the British had this wonderful hospital down in south in Kandahar called Camp Bastion. And the British were taking care of our Marines when they were coming straight off the field and then we'd get them in shipment from the British. And we were seeing time and time again these significantly ended, uh, wounded and injured Marines who the Brits took care of. And on the operative notes or in the emergency room notes, we'd see this drug called transimic acid that had been administered. We hadn't seen transimic. Well, uh-huh. TXA or transimic acid actually has been available over the counter in Europe for about the last 40 years. Right. You can walk in. It's commonly been used for women who have heavy menstrual periods, but you can walk into a European pharmacy and buy it like Tylenol. Mm-hmm. Talking to our British surgeons, they were taught to use it whenever a patient was bleeding a lot, and there was a big trial done about 10 years ago called the CRASH trial, which suggested that transimic acid actually helped patients who were bleeding. So the Brits were using it, and what we actually did is went back to our records and compared soldiers managed by the Brits who had gotten transimic acid versus similarly injured soldiers in either our system or other systems who didn't get transimic, and there actually was a statistically significant mortality improvement. So that paper was published about five years ago, and since that time we've been looking at it intently. Um, Transiximic acid is recommended by the TCCC. Transimic acid is carried by the military medics and is actually approved by the Secretary of Defense who writes off on our protocols, just like the Hamilton County or other counties' protocols does here. Secretary Woodson has signed off on the use of transimic acid by medics in the field. One gram, slow IV push over 10 minutes in the field, as long as you get to the wounded uh, or injured person within the first three hours. Right, right. Beyond three hours, there's some suggestion it may lead to excessive clotting, um, but for uh, the listening audience, that's probably not going to be dramatic. Right. And actually, right now, uh, we're partnering, the Division of Trauma is partnering with this uh, Department of Emergency Medicine, and transimic acid is being carried in the helicopters. Correct. We're looking at its early use out in the field, so some of you who are working or maybe calling an air care may actually see the docs and the flight nurses on the scene actually beginning to administer transiximic acid. 
Right. Yeah, and I know a lot of the uh, ground agencies uh, in the area are carrying it for uh, for hemorrhage control, and I think in, in air care, I believe they're studying it even for uh, head injuries as well. So you might even see expanded use of TXA in the future. That's right. That's right. And and we promise, and working through things like this podcast and through the EMS education process, what we're going to be working for and what we hope you're looking for is, is in, in today's world, it's about evidence-based medicine. Sure, absolutely. So count on us to come back with the results of these trials and not just think that transcendent works, but it's, it's our responsibility, you're partnering with you guys, to actually give you the literature that it does work. On that topic, that segues perfectly into the next thing I want to talk about, because uh, we're talking about starting IVs, uh, things that we thought worked and maybe made sense, but we're finding out through evidence really doesn't work and actually probably causes harm. So traditionally in trauma care, I know when I was in paramedic school and you were probably taught the same, it was flood them with fluid, just you know, two large bore IVs and run them wide open, uh, even if you suspect that they're bleeding. Talk about why uh, we're not doing that anymore and uh, this, the idea of permissive hypotension. Yeah, so it's interesting. You, you were sitting and smiling about what you were taught when you were a young medic. Yeah. And, I, and I too, I remember being in the back of the squad as a young medic and Timer, Stanley, the, the gray-haired guy, saying push those fluids because yep. no self-respecting paramedic would show up if your vitals weren't normal. Sure. Well, so what's interesting is we've all been taught for the last 50 years that giving IV fluids in the field is what we're supposed to do. It helps the patient. It seems intuitive that if the patient has low blood pressure, you get the blood pressure up. Right. But what's interesting is, again, if you go to evidence-based medicine, you or myself or anyone can sit in the medical school library for as long as you want looking for a paper that actually shows that some somebody or some way we've given IV fluids in the pre-hospital environment can show that it helps patients. That data simply is not out there. And in fact, since 1990 and over the last 20 years, there's lots of studies that suggest that giving too much fluid before you control bleeding, which is after all, what's going on in the pre-hospital environment is actually a a good way to actually make the patient sicker, to make them cold, to dilute them out, and actually to have them bleed to death faster. What's interesting is, again from paramedics, Mm -hmm. I think we're far enough away from it now that a lot of people have forgotten that the first and one of the most interesting studies was done in the city of Houston. Uh It was done in the early 1990s and was done over three years with the Houston uh, paramedic department. And that was run by Ben Top Hospital and paramedics on the city of Houston fire if they got to a patient who was stabbed or shot and their blood pressure was less than 90, if it was an even day on the calendar, they'd put it in an IV and give them fluids like you and I were talking, mm-hmm. two sure. liters crystalloid wide open. If it was an odd calendar day, they'd put it in an IV but no fluids. No fluids in route, no fluids in the emergency room, mm-hmm. and if, the only time you could give fluids was when they were up in the operating room. So over the course of three years, about 350 patients were enrolled in this trial, about 170 in each arm. And the result of that trial was, statistically, uh, the, the investigators were able to demonstrate that those patients who did not get fluids in the field actually had a better outcome. Since that time, numerous studies in the laboratory, actually interestingly, some studies done in the Center for Emergency Care, some research studies done in the late 90s and uh, early 2000 by a fellow by the name of Terry Kovalenko here from uh, UC Emergency Medicine in, in an, a bleeding animal model showed that the sooner you started pushing fluids and the sooner you bought, brought the blood pressure back up, the more likely you were to disrupt the clot, increase the bleeding in the animal's blood to death faster. Mm-hmm. So. Looking at all of that data, the TCCC has come to the conclusion that administration of IV fluids in the field should be very limited. And in fact, there's only two instances for the casualty who's been wounded, even with penetrating injuries, 
that the TCCC says that you should give fluids. Or put the other way, the TCCC says if you come upon a casualty and they're awake and talking, or if they have a pulse you can feel, either a radial or femoral, if those are the circumstances, you do not administer fluids. And in fact, we're working with Hamlin County pre-hospital protocol and people like the City of Cincinnati right. Department, and we've instituted that as a guideline as well. Um, now remember that that's for penetrating trauma, and that's you know it's from the military, which are young, healthy people. Right. But certainly, time and time again, I've seen the case where too vigorous or overzealous administration of IV fluids only bleeds them out more. Mm -hmm. If somebody is trying to die in the pre-hospital environment, especially with a penetrating injury, they're usually doing that because they're bleeding from a large vessel. Right. It's interesting that when the blood pressure falls below a certain level, usually around 90 millimeters of mercury pressure, once the blood pressure falls there, the bleeding stops and a mm -hmm. clot forms. But if we bring blood pressure up in the field before we can control it in the hospital or in the operating room, the patients just bleed uh, and they continue to hemorrhage. Right. So, no IV fluids in the field if the patient's talking to you, no IV fluids in the field if they have a pulse. Now, does that mean you don't start an IV? No, not at all. You can start an IV. Can you give them some fluids or some pain medication as indicated? Perhaps. The point is, the days where you and I were taught to squeeze that bag of crystalloid into them, those are gone for sure. Absolutely. And, oh, by the way, the worst thing you can do probably in the world, the most toxic fluid in this surgeon's <laughs> opinion, is normal saline and, in fact, lactated ringers because they're both acid. Right. And if you think about the triangle of death that you've heard so much about, which is acidosis, hypothermia, and coagulopathy, that's the way you make somebody acidemic, coagulopathic, and hypothermic is by pushing room temperature or ambient temperature fluids into them very quickly. You know, the one thing that I, I, I absolutely preach about when our, our EMS partners bring them in is, is watch those fluids, be very careful with it because you can't prove it helps, and in many cases it hurts. Absolutely perfect because I, I think we could do an entire separate podcast on all the bad things we, that go along with saline and or any could. crystalloid. But, uh, and we'll I, come back I, with people like Dr. Chris Miller or some of the other people who've been on podcasts before, and I promise that we'll do one because that is a full podcast and fascinating one. You can go through the whole history of IV yeah. fluids. They date back over 100 years. We're using the same fluid we, we invented 100 years ago. Yep. Yeah, there's a whole myriad of reasons of why they, they do more harm and, and certainly don't do any good. So, uh, But we'll move on to our next topic. Uh, so you, you talked about the, the lethal triad, and this is actually one of the my favorite topics to talk about because it's it's so simple. But I think because it's so simple, it's oftentimes overlooked in the pre-hospital setting and even in the emergency department uh, in a lot of cases. And that's the hypothermia part of the, the lethal triad of trauma. So you mentioned coagulopathy, acidosis, and hypothermia. So talk about uh, how those things tie into each other and sort of form a, a, a vicious cycle that leads to death and, and where preventing hypothermia is, is so important in the pre-hospital setting or for yeah, any, at any level of trauma. So care. absolutely. You know, human beings were meant to operate at 98.6 degrees. And importantly, that means all the enzymes in our body. The most important for this particular application, if you're bleeding, is the enzymes that help you clot blood. Right. And it has actually been very, very well studied that, like any other enzyme, enzymes are meant to work at both an optimal pH and an optimal temperature. And our clotting enzymes are zoned in to work at a pH around 7.4 and a temperature of 98.6. I can reach into you or to me and take a normal sample of blood, and as I make it colder, the ability of our blood to clot begins to decline. In fact, 
it is so well recognized that if body temperature falls below 93 degrees, which in the pre-hospital environment might be a little bit unusual or in an exposure mm -hmm. case, but we do in the operating room, once temperature's below 93 degrees, blood can physically not clot. Period, the end, and wow. blood stops clotting at 93 degrees. Now, you say, okay, well, I'm not going to get a patient 93. I agree, hopefully you won't. But you can get them 96 degrees if you're not careful in the back of an ambulance during winter. Or for us in the military, when we were flying some of our Marines from Fallujah in open helicopters where the windows were open and the guys, the casualties were on the floor, we could make them very cold. So at 96 degrees, you clot with only 60% efficiency and effectiveness. Acidosis, and acidosis occurs when you give somebody normal saline or lactated ringers, same thing. Mm -hmm. Acidosis deforms the enzymes. And then, in a way we're not 100% sure of, something happens in trauma patients that actually induces on its own coagulopathy. In fact, right. it's predictable, and the British have shown it, and now we're seeing it in civilian trauma and certainly in military, about 25 to 30 percent of patients who are seriously, significantly injured show up in the emergency room. By the time they get to us, 20 minutes later, they are already coagulopathic. So again, the MS providers, if you're in the emergency room at University Hospital with a sick patient, you'll see that what we do is down the trauma bay, working with emergency medicine, we now do stat labs right there mm -hmm. on site sure. to measure the patient's coagulation profile. It's called, we use an INR, and I can tell you statistically that if you come in with a patient to us who's very sick and their INR is elevated, I get really nervous because that mm -hmm. patient statistically has a higher chance of not surviving their injuries than if their INR is normal. Sure. So coagulopathy, acidosis, hypothermia, the lethal triad. And interestingly enough, you know, we're here in my office and there's a book written in 1943 uh -huh. by a famous surgeon in World War II. Don't think for a second we're telling you something new. Because sure. uh, Edward Churchill knew about it and, and Walter Cannon in the First World War. We're just remembering all over again. And I think the hypothermia thing that I, that I like to preach to people is it's not, an, it's not an environmental thing. So these patients get cold. I think it's intuitive in, the, in January in, in Ohio. It's you know 20 degrees outside and anybody's going to get cold if they're exposed long enough. But even in the middle of the summer, temperature could be 85. Because of the metabolism and the way things are changing internally, those patients are going to get hypothermic if you don't do something to prevent it. So controlling the temperature in an ambulance, keeping those patients uh, covered with blankets. After you know we, we have to do the assessment. We talk about strip and flip all the time and you got to see everything in trauma to assess. But once you're done doing that assessment and managing what you need to manage, cover those areas back up. Uh, and we should be sweating as providers in the back of that ambulance because that's what's going to be comfortable and beneficial to the patient. So uh, it, it's certainly it's not an environmental thing. It's a physiologic uh, event that's occurring with these patients. Yeah, and along those lines, for those paramedics out there who actually now have rapid sequence intubation protocols mm -hmm. and who use chemical paralytics, don't forget the administration of chemical paralytics takes away the body's number one defense mechanism to keep your temperature normal, which is shivering. Right. So interestingly, almost 20 years ago, AirCare did a study that showed that patients being brought by AirCare were more likely to arrive hypothermic, not based on calendar month, not based on outside temperature, but based upon whether they had rapid sequence intubation because you lose shivering. Interesting. So 100% one of my pet, kind of my knee-jerk reactions is in the trauma bay, we often do rapid sequence intubation, and our trauma bay is kept at 78 degrees for our comfort. Right. When that patient gets intubated, I reach for the bear hugger or some warming device 
to protect the patient and absolutely keep that squad warm. And in fact, those medics have come and gone up to our trauma room. We keep the operating room at the University Hospital, trauma room 21, we keep it at 88 degrees. Mm -hmm. And believe you me, we don't do that because we like to. Right. We sweat to death in there, but that's how obsessive we are about avoiding hypothermia. So yeah, you gotta be aggressive because once you've lost temperature, it's a lot harder to bring it back up. Sure. Don't lose temperature. So last big topic, I guess, to talk about, uh, a, a topic that for people that are regular listeners to various podcasts or follow uh, medicine in the kind of the social media world, the FOMED uh, community, if you will, will we'll love this, but it might be uh, fairly new to a lot of the your, your general EMS providers, and that's uh, a medication called ketamine. So ketamine has obviously been around for a long time. Uh, but you're start, starting to see more uses in the uh, overseas, and I think with that, we're going to see more use of ketamine here uh, in the states uh, in the civilian EMS. So, uh, talk about what ketamine is as a drug and how uh, it can be beneficial. Yeah. So again, interestingly, uh, if you read history, actually ketamine was developed actually in the 1960s, and mm -hmm. ketamine was first fielded by the U.S. Army as a pain medication in Vietnam. And ketamine lost favor because of some things that we'll talk about in a section, which it was called dissociation mm -hmm. or nightmares. But ketamine turns out to be a really interesting drug, and it really works in a neat fashion because it doesn't affect the brainstem. Now, most of you out there on, uh, listening to this podcast will think about your pain protocols, and a lot of you still use morphine as your number one agent. So I'm pleased to say that after almost 170 years, the military has finally moved morphine off its shelf. Mm -hmm. Morphine is no longer the number one pain agent used by the military because of its respiratory depression, because of all the other serious complications. Right. In fact, at Normandy, uh, those you may know that you had auto injectors even back then of morphine, and the medics were taught one for pain, two for the angels, which mm -hmm. meant if you had a casualty who was not going to survive, you could help them ease their pain and suffering and, ha and, ha and actually help their death by simply administering two surrettes of morphine, wow. which we still sometimes do out in the field to patients. Sure. So morphine uh, is gone. Ketamine is an agent that works by blocking something called an NMDA receptor, but it doesn't touch the brain cell. And in uh, specifically higher doses, what it does is it stops the brain's ability to translate the experience of pain down to the brain stem. So the patients still perceive pain, but they just don't integrate it. Right. And it's a very safe drug, and because it doesn't touch the brainstem, it's not associated with respiratory depression, it's not associated with bradycardia, it's not associated with somnolence. The patients actually, even on a significant dose of ketamine, they still have a cough reflex, they still have a gag reflex, mm -hmm. they'll still blink. So it's a wonderful drug, and again, you'll see us at University Hospital now, in fact, I just came to this podcast after administering ketamine downstairs uh -huh. for a patient, a trauma patient who needed to have a chest tube put in. Wonderful adjunct, and I think most of the medics know that even if you, if you need to go to a narcotic now, the military's completely moved away from morphine in favor of fentanyl, mm -hmm. and more specifically, we're using what's called the fentanyl troche or the fentanyl lollipop. The fentanyl lollipop is exactly what it sounds like. It's oral fentanyl in kind of like a lozenge on a stick. It's been around for cancer patients for a long time. We teach our medics to tape that lollipop on a stick to the finger uh -huh. and let the casually lick the fentanyl until their pain is resolved. 
And the beauty of that mechanism is if the, if the casualty takes enough of the fentanyl that their pain's relieved and they get sleepy, their hand falls away from their mouth and sure. they don't. So the military, we have some 3,000 administrations of fentanyl uh, orally in the field with about uh, three uh, out of the 3,000 uh, recorded potential overdoses, but those were all in patients who previously got morphine. So again, you know, I am, uh, I do have the good fortune of working as medical director for some of the squads out there. I can tell you, I lose a lot less sleep now knowing that my medics are using ketamine rather than morphine sure. as their first line agent. And I think one of the next things that we need to partner with and work is to get, ket or to get fentanyl out there. Uh, obviously it's a controlled drug just like morphine, but to get fentanyl, oral administered fentanyl out there because it's, it's really works well for the patient. So the last thing I wanted to mention, you mentioned at the very beginning, you invited uh, some of the local EMS providers to uh, come visit and, uh, and see some of the facilities here. Uh, I want to remind everybody that's in the local, if you're in the Cincinnati area, we do offer uh, uh, free trauma rounds education for our EMS providers. It, uh, you get about four hours of CEUs. Uh, there's no charge. It starts at 7 in the morning. Uh, I believe those are offered every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And basically you just come in and round with the trauma team. Uh, as they uh, round through the SICU and discuss various patients and their co kind of course of care. And uh, it's very interesting. You get to see from, you know, obviously we see that the, the first, you know, 10, 20 minutes or whatever after uh, of care after a patient, patient is injured. Uh, we're here, you get to see, you know, some of what are the long-term uh, effects of various injuries in the long-term care of patients. So uh, we re received a lot of great feedback on it from people that have come in and, uh, uh, and done that. So if, you, uh, if you're in the Cincinnati area and you want to take advantage of that, certainly do that. I'll have a link. Uh, Lauren Stenger is the uh, contact to get that scheduled. You do need to schedule it in advance, uh, but it is free. And uh, uh, she has about two weeks' notice uh, usually to get that scheduled. Uh, and I'll have her contact information linked uh, on the uh, webcast on the, pod, on, the, uh, on the webpage where this podcast can be found. So uh, if you're interested in that, definitely take advantage of that. Yeah, and the other thing I always tell folks, you know, so what was frustrating, just as Josh was alluding to, is you really worked hard on a patient, you dropped them off, and then you don't know what happens to them. So the other thing, in addition to come and join us on Medic Rounds, we would certainly encourage all of our EMS providers to reach out to our EMS coordinators, people like Josh, Lauren, etc. And if you want to know what happened to your patient, give us a call. Uh, if you want to and can stop the next day after you're off shift, uh, we'll try to arrange to meet you somewhere so you can see the patients if they've been admitted. Um, because it's only by putting that piece together, what we do once you bring them to us, that makes us both better medics in the field. So, again, it's been a, a great privilege to kind of chatting. I look forward to seeing you guys in the trauma bay. Congratulations uh, as our partners in trauma care on EMS week, and we'll see you soon. Yeah, that's a great point. And just to uh, add one more thing, if I could, uh, you reminded me, we now have a uh, online follow-up form that anybody can get to, and I'll link to that on the uh, webpage as well. Uh, and that, It's a one-stop one form. If you drop a patient off at Westchester Hospital, UCMC, or fly them by air care, uh, any UC Health facility, it's the same form. Uh, you just select what agency, and uh, it, uh, it, the, it'll direct that information uh, to the right person and they'll get a follow-up back with you. So again, that's excellent ed education as well. So, uh, Dr. Johanneman, thanks again for, uh, you've been very gracious with your time. Uh, is any, uh, last words for, uh, our EMS providers here during, uh, EMS week? Well, again, uh, without you, we don't do it. Without you, uh, the patients don't get to us. So congratulations, uh, look forward and, uh, uh, don't be surprised if you see me out there at the scene with you because I really do miss being out in the field. Congratulations and, uh, look forward to seeing you all. Thanks again. Thanks, everybody.